Good morning again. Turn with me uh, in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be beginning in verse 18 and going through verse 11. Open up uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your continued faithfulness and kindness to your people. We thank you for your grace and your common grace. We thank you that you are a God who is uh, full of mercy and forgiveness and pardon. We pray that you might help us now as we look at this passage of Scripture, that you might encourage us and that you might drive us to Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. From the uh, beginning of time, uh, men have arisen who claim to be our sole access to truth. Cults are famous for this, that one person is kind of the gatekeeper who knows that if you want to have truth and you want to have access to it, you have to come through me to get it. You know, of course, the famous example of Jim Jones and the People's Temple. In 1978, he led his cult to a massive murder-suicide by drinking cyanide-laced Kool-Aid or more accurately, flavor aid. This is where we get our modern phrase, uh, drinking the Kool-Aid from. David Koresh is another example. In 1993, there was a 51-day siege of their religious compound, which ended in the death of uh, 82 followers and four federal agents. Some of you may be old enough to remember the Heaven's Gate cult, I remember this. Uh, Their claim to fame was a mass suicide in 1997. They believed that if they committed suicide, that they would be transported to a UFO that was following the Hale-Bopp comet when it got close to the Earth. These cult leaders presented themselves to their followers and to people as the sole access to truth, the sole access to what is right, uh, as their hope. And although these extreme examples are rare, there are a thousand lesser examples that abound today. Everyone is always saying that they have the answer, that they have the truth, they have the solution, that they are the ones worthy of interpreting truth for us. In modern evangelical Christianity, this looks like people coming to the church with new philosophies telling us that we need them or we need these new philosophies in order to understand truth. The Bible, we're told, needs to be reinterpreted or we need to deconstruct it. False teachers are a dime a dozen today. You can find a church or a homeschooling co-op or a college or a university or a knitting club tailored to your specific, exact beliefs. I heard a speaker one time at a church open up his message by saying, I'm going to tell you things that you have never heard before. It remains that one of the most repetitive, frequently occurring warnings in the New Testament is the warning against false teachers and false teaching. You cannot read the New Testament and come away with the conclusion that doctrine is optional. It is the core 
How do we know what is true? The New Testament has a high priority. In fact, the whole Bible has a high priority on doctrinal purity and theological clarity. And the answer to all of this chaos and all of this nonsense is what it has always been. Stick to the truth that we have had from the beginning. And this is exactly what John tells us in our passage today. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is a promise that he has made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. John begins this portion of scripture by telling his readers that it is now the last hour. In verse 18, he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist, or that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. Now, this verse, as we begin here, has been the focus of a lot of discussion. He begins by saying, matter-of-factly, hey, it is the last hour right now. And this, of course, we know was 2,000 years ago about. And the question is what he means by the statement, the last hour. The New Testament, of course, is full of similar statements, the latter times, the last days, the end of all things, or the last time. And given the number, the sheer number of statements that say something to this effect in Scripture, in the New Testament, one would have thought that the end would have already come in the first or second century. Here we are 2,000 years later, and life continues on as it has been going. I would suggest to us that it's best to understand these statements, uh, the, the end or the last hour, the latter times, the last days, the end of all things, to understand these statements as referring to the period of time between the two comings of Christ. So Jesus has come, and Jesus will come again in the future, and this period of time is the latter days. We sometimes talk about uh, the time of the tribulation as the end times, and it is correct and accurate to talk about that as the end times, but the New Testament also talks about this period of time as the latter days, the end times in a sense. It is, we might say then, just as legitimate to say in the first century that we are living in the last days as it is to say that now. We can rightly say 
that after Jesus Christ ascended, the last days begun. How do we know this? Because of what John says. He says, we are living in the age of the Antichrists. That is what this age is, in one sense. Not the Antichrist, but the age of Antichrists. That is what the verse says. He says, essentially, you heard that the Antichrist is coming, but right now there are many Antichrists, and that is how, by the presence of all of these Antichrists, that is how we know that it's now the last hour. Now, one technical note here is that he does not mean, when he uses the word Antichrist here, he does not mean that they are impersonating Christ necessarily, although some may. He's not saying that the presence of Antichrists means that there are people who are raising up and saying, I am Jesus Christ. Uh, He's not talking about that, but rather when he says it is really the age of Antichrists, many have come, he's saying that these are people who are Antichrist, opposed to Christ, and specifically in uh, the context of 1 John, that is, they are attacking uh, a, a true and orthodox Christology. They're denying that this is the Son. They're denying the deity of Christ. And so in that sense, they're antichrists. The age of antichrist has begun, essentially. And he describes the behavior of these antichrists in verse 19, and he describes them as the kind of people who don't persevere in the faith. We see this in verse 19. They went out from us but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So he's describing a situation here where you have these antichrists or these false teachers or these people who are opposed to a a true and accurate understanding of who Jesus is. These people were part of this church But they eventually left the church. They, of course, paved the way. These were some of the very first people who would pave the way for many to come after them and deconstruct their faith. Now, there are at least two things to learn from this verse. The first one is this. Sometimes false converts, false teachers, and unbelievers hide themselves among the faithful like tares among wheat. This means this, that while we seek to prevent this from happening, um, that every, or it's possible that any church, including our own, is not made up of 100% regenerate members. We seek to hear salvation testimonies, and we believe that the Lord is calling us in the best of our ability to uh, have a church that is full of people who are genuine believers in Christ. But we understand that it is possible that there will be tares among the wheat. And our prayer, of course, is that if there be anyone here at Crossview Church, member or not member, who is not a true and genuine believer, that they would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing to understand from this verse. 
The second thing to take away from this verse is that true believers will persevere. In other words, people who fall away from the faith, people who fall away from Christ, technically never were in Christ to begin with. Or said differently, one cannot lose one's salvation. And of course, the primary reason for this is because our salvation hinges upon the Lord's free grace and not by our own merit. If we could somehow behave in such a way as to, fall, as to lose our salvation, if we could do that, then we would have to say that the, fi- our final, st- the final state of every human is contingent upon their own good works and on their own behavior. But we know that salvation is by God's free grace. He says that those who went out did so because they were never genuinely of them to begin with. They were false. On the other hand, had they been of them or had they been in Christ, what would have happened differently? What does he say? They would have remained. They wouldn't have left. If they really were, of the Lord, if they were in Christ, then they would have remained with you. You cannot ever say this. This, You can never say this statement. At one point in my life, I was genuinely, truly in Christ, and then I was genuinely, truly out of Christ. It's an impossibility if we believe in the Lord's grace. William Perkins uh, reports Augustine as saying, love which may be lost was never true. I think this is a true statement. Uh, The greatest indication or the greatest litmus test of past love is present love. And the reason is because love has a persevering quality to it. And although some may protest, I would suggest to us that this is true even in human relationships. You see, there's a marriage. If one spouse falls out of love with the other spouse, then it is right to ask whether or not the love that they had in the beginning was genuine or not. It it didn't persevere. You may have had a form of love, a close cousin perhaps, or an acquaintance, of love, but you do not have the true thing because true love genuinely perseveres. Love is unconditional, love is persevering, love is steady, love is stable, love is enduring. And it grieves me as a pastor, and it grieves me as a human being, and it grieves me as a friend to think about who might not be here five years from now, ten years from now. And I'm not talking about who might not be here because you got a job out of state and you moved, okay? I'm talking about who might not be here in the fellowship of the brethren anymore, who might not be following the Lord. Those who go out from us do so because they are not of us, John says. 
One commentator says, future and final perseverance is the ultimate test of a past participation in Christ. Likewise, Calvin says, those who fall away, on the other hand, have never been thoroughly imbued with the knowledge of Christ, but only had a slight and passing taste of it. They never had the real thing. In addition, Jesus himself promises and commits that he will not lose any of his children. In John 6, in verse 39, Jesus says, This is the will of him who sent me, that is the Father, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus Christ promises to preserve his people. He also says in John 10 and verse 28 that no human being has the ability to snatch you out of his hand, which would also include you as one of the human beings who cannot do that. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When you read this phrase, never perish, you'll know that there's no fine print after this statement. They will never perish. Never. This will never happen to those who are in Christ. Jesus will sustain you to the end, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. Uh, Jesus who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who depart from the faith never were true to begin with. The Puritan um, John Flavel says, wretched, uh, on, on, about this person who leaves, who departs, wretched soul, thy case is sad. But this is not the case for the believer. John says in our passage, you have been, but you, have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. There are people who have departed, and those people never were truly in Christ to begin with, but you, you've been anointed. You've received the Holy Spirit, and because of this, you have knowledge. They were anointed by the Holy One here, a reference to Christ, and the result of this anointing is that they have knowledge. Now, what does he mean when he says that they have knowledge? I want to read the next verse and kind of combine uh, the second half of verse 20 and verse 21. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. He is emphasizing the reality that these believers already have the knowledge of the truth. Here is what he's saying. He's saying, you guys received the gospel and the truth from the beginning. And now what you have is these false converts who have left your church coming alongside of you and saying, hey, you need to listen to me because I have access to truth that you know not of. I have special insights. I have something that you need, and and, and if you don't come to me, and if you don't listen to what I'm telling you, then you cannot understand truth. You need to wake up and smell the coffee. 
We already have truth. It's given to us, and we have it from the beginning. This is his argument. You don't need these people to come in, these early Gnostics that we've been talking about for several weeks. You don't need these people to come in and say, I've got some insight that nobody else has. I have some wisdom that nobody else has. Come over here, and I'll give this instruction to you. He says, the truth that we've had from the beginning is plain, and it's apparent, and it's accessible to all, and it's not hidden or concealed in any way. It's simply the simple truth of the gospel that has always been here from the very beginning. He said, you got, don't listen to those guys. You have what's been from the beginning. You don't need hidden knowledge, and so neither do we. By the way, this is a very good case against theological liberalism, if I may add. We don't need the new finangled insights. We don't need the findings of higher criticism and all of these kinds of things that are new on the scene. We simply stick to the truth that we've had from the beginning. You know the truth, he says, and no lies of the truth. Who is the liar? It's the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, verse 22. This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. John is writing to people who specifically, uh, the, the church is being threatened by these people who have left. They left because they weren't of the church. And now they're coming with this newfangled truth and they're denying that Jesus is the Christ. It's a Christological heresy. And now he's writing to protect this church from this particular heresy. And he says, if you deny Christ, then you also are denying the Father. Verse 23, so no one who denies the Son has a Father. Whoever confesses the Son has a Father also. In other words, he's saying, you can't have God without Christ. He's saying, this is a serious error going on in in your midst. You need to watch out for these people who have left the church who never were really of you to begin with because they're denying Christ. And that has serious implications. The implication of denying Christ is that you don't have the Father either. It's like a package deal. You, You don't get the Father without the Son, because what what happens there? There's no atonement there. It's only through Christ. Of course, John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The sole access to the Father. If you deny the Son, then you do not have the Father. This means this. Cults, then, such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, who deny the deity of Christ are not gospel partners, but actually require us to evangelize them. Because when they don't have the Son, they also don't have the Father. And if you don't have the Father, you don't have eternal life. Those who deny the Son are outside of the faith. If you wanted to try and to develop some form or version of a quote-unquote mere Christianity or an essential Christianity or an essential doctrines list, okay, a proper and right understanding of the deity of Jesus Christ is at the center of that list. You deny this, you don't have eternal life. This is part of what a mere Christianity is. It is knowing and confessing, as the verse says, confessing the Son. My salvation, then, is bound up in my understanding of Christ. Therefore, what's the application of this? Don't pursue fads. 
Let the simple gospel truth that you heard in the beginning dwell in you. This is what he's saying. What's going to safeguard us from error, from from theological error? What's going to safeguard us from false teaching? Just don't run after fads. Just go with what has been true from the very beginning. And that's the admonition. Look at verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Very simple. We might say it this way. Innovation makes for a good circus, but for bad theology. Innovation is not welcome in theology. It's actually the Athenian... Not the Christian who is always chomping at the bit to hear something new. You know this, of course, from Acts 17, 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is not characteristic of the Christian. This is characteristic of the unbeliever. In a very literal sense, then, and I'm using this word in the most literal way possible. In a very literal sense, Christians are always to be conservative in their theology. Because, because the canon of Scripture is inspired by God, it's unchanging. Meaning that we are conserving and preserving the truth that we have had from the beginning. Progressive theology is a bad idea. We're not looking for something new, but for something old. That's what Christianity is. Those who do this, those who abide in the message that is from the beginning, are counted among those who what? Abide in the Son and in the Father. And they have eternal life. It is those people who have everlasting life. 1 John 2, 25, the next verse. This is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. John is trying to assure his readers. He is reminding them of the eternal life that they have, and he also is wanting to protect them. And so really the purpose of this passage, this section, is kind of twofold. On the one hand, he's warning them about these false teachers who've departed and now are trying to influence them with something new, some kind of a fad, something that was not from the beginning. And he's saying, I want to warn you about this group of people, and you need to be careful about what they're teaching. On the other hand, he's trying to encourage his readers as well, because some of them may be, well, where does this leave me? And he encourages them with eternal life, and he reminds them in verse 26 that he's trying to warn them. I write these things to you, about those who are trying to deceive you. I'm just warning you that there are people trying to deceive you. He's not accusing his readers of heresy. Rather, he's warning them of the heretics. They are the target. John's readers are the target of false teachers, and John is simply trying to prevent that. And so what's the cure to this? Abiding in the truth. Verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, 
and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. One commentator uh, summarizes this verse by saying, So again, the antidote to falling into false ideas of the Christian faith is to be found in holding fast to the initial statement of Christian truth given in the apostolic witness, as this is confirmed in our hearts by the anointing given by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Simply rest in the truth that you've had from the beginning. Now, in making this argument, John gives to us a statement that is incredibly interesting and maybe even a little bit perplexing. He says, you don't have a need that anybody should teach you. You don't need anyone to teach you. This is an interesting statement for obvious reasons. Because in giving this statement, John is teaching them. (laughs) And so this would appear, at first glance, to be paradoxical. Or we might call this an apparent, not an actual, but an apparent contradiction. He's saying, watch out for these false teachers. They're coming in. They're trying to tell you all these wrong things about Christ and lead you astray and pull you outside of the church. Just be aware. Stick to what you had from the beginning And you don't need anyone to teach you anything. So why are we listening to you, John, if we don't need anybody to teach us? And so here's the question, simply put. Do we need teachers or no? What do we need? Do we need them? Do we not need them? You need to remember the context of this letter, 1 John. And that is that... During this day, we, we said that um, there, there's, there's a, um, uh, a philosophical system uh, called Gnosticism that really came about in the second century, and that in the first century there was uh, some of its beginnings going on. And Gnosticism basically was this teaching about hidden knowledge. And so... Um, if you really want to understand the Bible, you need to be able to read in between the lines. Sometimes quite literally. In fact, we saw a few weeks ago uh, of a modern version of Gnosticism of something called the Bible Code, where people will put the Bible text out in the Hebrew uh, or in the Greek, and they'll do like a crossword puzzle, and they'll say, oh, we found the word towers, and we found the word uh, September 11th. And we found this, and we found crash. And so now we know that the Bible all along was predicting 9-11, okay? Um, That's Gnosticism. You need us to give you special insight about the secret code that's between the lines of Scripture, okay? And so one of the features of Gnosticism is that certain people will arise, and they will claim to be the source of this hidden knowledge. Uh, and if you want to know truth, you have to come through me. So, so that's the context for what's going on here. And here's what John is saying. Here's, here's what I'm going to suggest to us John is saying. When John is saying 
You don't need anybody to teach you. He's saying this. If anybody walks up to you and says, you need me to understand truth, then you don't need them. Why? Because John's argument is that truth is accessible to all Christians through Scripture and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Part of the work of the Holy Spirit is the illumination of Scripture. I've talked to many people, some even here in this room, who've shared this testimony. I was an unbeliever, and I read the Bible. Then I believed on Jesus Christ and became a Christian, and suddenly so many things in Scripture started to make sense to me. This is the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating Scripture. And hence, our opening illustration with all the examples of the cults who say, you need me to know truth. This is what he's arguing against. Let me give you another example. This is what I think John is getting at. The Roman Catholic Church is a perfect example of this. They say, in essence, this. We as the church alone possess the correct interpretation of Scripture. Without us, you cannot understand the Bible. You come to the gates and check all beliefs about the Bible here. We will evaluate them. We will determine whether or not we agree with them. And if we disagree with your view, then we will totally dismiss that, and you must submit to what we say the right interpretation is. Your interpretations are subject to us. Now, if somebody, if a person ever says that to you, if a church ever says that to you, if a pastor ever says that to you, my uh, pastoral counsel to you is to run in the other direction as fast as you possibly can. John cannot be saying that you should not listen to any teachers. If that's what he was saying then the statement itself would be self-refuting and thus meaningless, as he himself is teaching. He's not denying the importance of teachers. He's not denying the importance of authority. He's not denying the importance of the church. And he's not even denying the importance of, of, of a church authority coming and saying, I think you need to rethink what you understand this passage to be. We should, as Christians surround ourselves with good teachers, and we should cherish their insights. Um, They are a help to us. But there is no one person who is that piece of the puzzle that without this, you don't have truth. That's what he's saying. You need teachers. You need people to give you insight. I need teachers. I need people to give me insight. But I can't get up here and say, you need me. You see the difference in those two? You can find truth without me and without my insights. And so he's simply saying, watch out to who you're listening to, because if they are presenting themselves in such a way as to be your sole access to truth, 
then you need to be very careful of that because they will lead you astray. So the question then is, where do we go from here with this passage? Let's back up and look at the whole picture here. John writes this portion of 1 John to warn these church members about former church members. There were certain Christians who were in the church, and then they left the church, but they still were exercising influence in the church and putting pressure on the Christians there to leave the truth that they had heard from the beginning. John simply writes this section to warn them and say, don't yield to that influence. They're trying to lead you astray. We know what truth is because we've heard it from the beginning. Stick to that truth. And therefore, we're really going to apply this passage to ourselves in the exact same way. Watch out for those who would shipwreck your faith. Especially those who claim new insights on Scripture or those who claim that you need them to explain Scripture. Watch out for those who depart from the faith. The corollary to this warning... The warning is, watch out for those who would pull you away from the truth. The corollary to this is that you would remain in the truth that is from the beginning. We are looking for the sturdy, stable, standard, abiding, long-lasting truth that has guided the church for the last 2,000 years. We want the truth. New ideas... And new philosophies and false teachers are a dime a dozen today. You can go on any street corner and you can take your pick, the smorgasbord of whatever you want to take of any kind of false teaching. So simply abide in the truth. Practically speaking, here's what that means. I heard so-and-so say this today. Let me go check what scripture says on that. And if you don't understand that, then here's what you do. We happen to have something that the Lord has ordained, and that is a local church, okay? And this is not to be, uh, the importance of this is not to be ignored, okay? And so someone comes up to you and says such and such, and you say, let me check on that. And you look in scripture, and you say, I'm not sure where to find anything about this. You find someone in the church and say, can you help me understand such and such? Is this a biblical concept? Is this not a biblical concept? And look for the truth that's from the beginning. In light of this, I just have four points of application. The first one is this. um, Rest in the eternal security of the believer. All true believers will persevere... And this is a cause of rejoicing for the Christians. Celebrate the Christ who will hold me fast. We sing that song, right? If they had been of us, what did he say? If they, if they had been of us, they would have done what? Remained. So we can rest in that. Okay? The second point of application is this. Persevere in prayer for those who have departed from the faith knowing that the Lord is able to save them. Someone who leaves and departs the faith reveals that they never were in Christ to begin with. 
So what do we do? We pray that they would repent and believe in Christ. Is this not the, the end of church discipline to treat them like an unbeliever in the sense of, I evangelize unbelievers. I want the restoration of that fellowship by them being in Christ. So persevere in prayer for these people. Third point of application is to confess the Son, as the passage says. We're going to say that this is repenting and believing on Christ. To confess or to say the same thing about the Son, that God says about the Son, that he is the Christ. We are to confess him. All those who confess the Son have eternal life. This means that if you are someone who is not in Christ here, then our exhortation is for you to be repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will save you. And then the final application is avoid theological novelty by adhering to the truth that's from the beginning. Look to teachers who confirm scripture, not try to explain it away. Avoid teachers who reinterpret or deconstruct the Bible. Look to the simple truth that's from the beginning. Thank you, Lord, for your continued faithfulness to us. We thank you for this passage of Scripture, and we thank you for the warnings that are here to us. Be very careful that we do not uh, find ourselves being led astray by false teaching. I pray that you'd encourage all those who are in Christ, knowing that they have eternal life, and that their sins are forgiven, and that they may spend an eternity in heaven with you one day. We pray that if there be any here in our midst who are unbelievers, who might be tares in the wheat, we pray that you might regenerate them, that you would cause them to be born again, that they would be saved for your glory and your honor. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.